What's going on, guys? AJ here back again with another episode of the E1B2 Collective Podcast. And yes, bringing you yet another episode of Let's Talk Startups. And today I have Brendan McAdams on the podcast today, guys. This was, and I know I say this a lot, but I genuinely, genuinely believe this. This was the most organic, natural, free-flowing, in-depth, practical uh conversation and interview that I think I've ever had. I think what we did is we were able to kind of rift on a few ideas. I actually was put on the spot by myself there in a moment and uh, presented a couple really kind of interesting and huge ideas that I hope Brandon kind of takes advantage of. And I hope I can kind of jump in and be a supporter, an advisor, a thought leader, uh, a, a strategist, something on that initiative. And then we just talked about a lot of things, guys. And, you know, Brandon McAdams, a little bit of background on him. He's a guy that does all things entrepreneurship. So that's just at a high level. And then at a micro level, he's a real B2B guy. And so we really talked about sales teams, uh, you know, how to go about interviewing and finding uh, a sales leader within your organization. And then we rifted on the idea that I presented. Then he gave us some best practices around B2B and uh, just sales overall and, and how to think about that at the startup level. And so I'm very, very impressed with this um, with this gentleman here. And then I'm very, very happy and fulfilled and thankful around how this podcast episode turned out. So thank you, Brendan. Thank you for all the listeners and downloaders and subscribers of this podcast. Uh, it's so humbling and, and I'm so appreciative. And so enjoy this episode. I hope you guys like it. I think this is one of the best. And I know I say that a lot, but I I don't know. I just keep, uh, we keep one-upping ourselves. And so I'm really excited about it. Enjoy this. Thank you, Brendan. Let's go. So Brendan, um, is it it's Brendan or Brandon? Brendan. Brendan, perfect. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you coming on to this podcast. I know it was a a bit of time since our introduction call till now, but um, I, I appreciate sure. the uh, yeah, man. I I appreciate you being here. I guess for the um for the listeners that uh, are going to tune in here, inevitably over the next eighteen to twenty four months here, please uh please let us know who you are where you're from originally. I know, I know you're right now in my hometown. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, where are you from originally? Um, and then give us a 90 second of where you've been and, and what you're working on now. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a, I'm, it's kind of a, a, a varied trip. I, I started out in California. Well, I was born in, in Philly, but I grew up in California and then relocated the East coast a long time ago up in New Jersey. And then, and then migrated down to Baltimore about 10 years ago. And uh, uh, my background has been in enterprise sales to, you know, Fortune 50 kinds of companies for the last, for most of my career. And then 10 years ago, I got into uh, consulting to tech companies, uh, particularly healthcare tech companies. And so for the last 10 years, that's what I've been working on. And now I'm kind of pivoting again and doing more, less of that and more sales coaching to startups and to founders in particular. So the audience your audience is kind of, kind of my audience. Very cool. And, and, and what, and what side startups are we, are we referring to? I know there's, you know, one thing that I've come to realize as I've gotten deeper in this industry, some people think startups are small teams of five to 10. Some people think startups are, you know, series A, series B, series C, which can be a few hundred folks. What's your definition? Yeah, oh, that's a that's an excellent point, and uh, yeah, I specifically for me, 
I mean, there, I, there are a lot of different startups, but the ones that I focus on are kind of uh, what I would call relatively early stage. So it's, and, and the way I kind of define it is, you know, when, when the founders need to be selling or when they're just transitioning into their early sales team, if they've got, if they've got a VP of sales and, uh, you know, and they've got like a half a dozen salespeople, I, you know, I can do some training or kind of run a workshop, but by and large, those aren't my customers. It's really the, it's, it's founders. So it's early seed stage, you know, angel investors, you know, you know, that group in particular. Let me ask you a pretty direct question here. And sure. one thing that I like to do in this podcast is I like to be really candid and really um, direct around a, a couple of perspectives. So I, I, you know, please be free to do the same. Um, sure. Something I told you in our introduction a while back, I don't know if you remember, but you know, I founded a company in 19, uh, I founded another one at 21. And then I guess technically, I haven't really thought of it this way. I haven't really actually defined it, but I guess, you know, not, I guess I am, you know, this past 13, 14 months of COVID, you know, I've been running various companies and projects. So I'm, I'm back in that seat. Something I've always done. I've definitely been a part of a lot of the sales of everything that I've done in all of my companies, but I always put teams in place really at the ideation level. And we'll get into that in a moment. But yeah. one of the big roles that I've thought about putting a team in place for some of the companies now and kind of maybe my next my next crack of companies that I'm thinking about trying to start or be involved in, what's your direct perspective on a founder partnering or making a partnership or a collaboration with someone to handle the sales components and staying at that that at a technical or visionary level founder versus what you were just saying, which is typically a lot of founders are selling themselves. Do you have a preference? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I think that founders have to be, until they've gotten a number of sales under their belt, they shouldn't hire uh, a salesperson, number one. And number two is, I think the founders need to be selling at least one of the founders needs to be involved, directly involved with sales. And the reason for that is multifold. And that is, you know, they, they need to understand what the, uh, what, the, what the sales process is like and what the objections are and the reactions they get for certain features and functions. And they need to understand integration and they need to build relationships with these customers. And they need to understand the language of that industry. What if it's a vertical or, or even if it's not a vertical, if it's a horizontal product, they still, when they talk to people in, in pharma, for example, there's a language that pharma people use that's different than the language that people in academic medical centers use or the people that in uh, telecom use. And so you need to know all those sorts of things firsthand. And so I, I really fundamentally believe that early stage founders have to be, at least one of them has to own sales. So yeah, that's, I'm quite adamant about that. That, that's very interesting. And I actually agree and I don't disagree. I think, I think it's interesting though. Um, let me ask you this then. What if they're either A, and I think, I already think I know the answer to your question, but maybe <laughs> I'll let you kind of answer sure. it. What if they're A, not good at it originally, yeah. which yeah. many of us are in anything in life. Um, or B, what if, what if they, you know, are very adamant around um, finding early collaborations to kind of replace 
their efforts, whether again, whether that's a partnership, whether that's externally making a collaboration and not necessarily having someone internal and giving them equity to kind of close the gap on some of what you were just talking about, which is language. You know, there's different language there, there's different complexities. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I guess I guess in the in the very early stages, until you've got a, a handful of customers in and successful, um, I think that um, you don't have you don't have this is a term that I kind of bristle at, but product market fit. Um, you, you don't have that at their very early stages, and so the the founders need to be kind of um, they need to be witness to what the reactions they're getting from their prospective customers will be. And so I don't think you can outsource that. And, yeah. and so, but that all, you also bring up another point, you get a founder that's really not a good at sales. And, you know, if it's a solo founder, then you, that's a, that could be a problem um, because somebody has to be at least decent at sales. But the challenge with founders is if you want to stay a founder in a company, chances are you're going to have to get good at sales at some level. Good, the good sales, the good CEOs at companies tend to be decent at sales at some level. And it's, it's as, as the company grows and becomes successful that the CEO role or the founder roles tend to be sales roles, uh, at least significantly. So it's kind of hard to get away from it. You know, it's funny, Brandon, I, I think I know what you're referring to when you say being good at sales roles as a, as a, you know, some of the best CEOs and founders out here. And I, th I think I know what you're related, you're referring to, but you, you, I know a different way I would spin it as well. And I would love to get your two cents on it. Um, you know, I think, cause you know, with my background and what I'm working on actively currently, yeah. a lot of my work is around leadership and people operations and employee experience and things of that nature. Yeah. And, and something I thought about, as you were saying, that is, I believe it's also a responsibility to understand and be great at sales because a great founder is a great recruiter. You yeah. know, a great founder is a great, you know, galvanizer of people. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yep. You know, and, and a great founder is a great salesman of, or saleswoman of new products, new services, yep. new, new ways of working to their internal organization. And so, yeah. Um, things, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, it's not just external, it's internal as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the, the, I've worked for a bunch of uh, good CEOs and, and, and they've invariably been good at sales because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's communication, it's setting a vision, it's, it's creating confidence in your customers that, uh, the, the, you know, the company is, is going in the right direction and it's the right company to go with. So these skills are, these skills are not ones that are going to go away. And, you know, as you, as the company scales. And so you, you, you it, it behooves you early on to develop some of those early relationships with your kind of your, your, your kind of um, cornerstone customers, if you will, that are going to help you um, grow the company uh, long-term there be the references, be the case studies that you need to, to get the second tranche and the third tranche of, of customers. Entrepreneurship for you, Brennan. Um, yeah. You ever thought about it? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. All the time, actually. Yeah. What I mean by that is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you may have heard, you, you, were, you, were, you, were you or you were once a founder of a few 
things now. Now, yeah, I am now. I have a comp- We have a company, a buddy of mine, and I started a company called Expertscape, that is in the medical space that identifies and ranks um, medical expertise by specific topic, and it uses PubMed to do it. So yeah, we're. I'm a. I am an active Bootstrap founder in addition to everything else I do. Some. Tell me about that right now. How, where you you don't have to give me revenue. I'm not too interested in in, in kind of exposing those those realities. Sure. But what's uh you know what's what's team size? How are you guys doing? How long has the company been around? Um, yeah. What are, your, what are your thoughts about it? Right. Yeah. Now? Sure. So we we've been the, the the product as it is is available. You can go check it out now. Expertscape.com, and um, it's free to use. Hopefully. None of your listener, your listeners never need to use it because it's 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 not the sort of website you want to be going to. It's when you've been a diagnosed with a serious condition and you need to find somebody who's really knowledgeable about it because um, uh, you want a second opinion or you want you want to go to a specialist or what have you. Um, and we've been it, the 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 the, the uh, site's been up and running for many years. And it's been kind of very proven and beaten on, and and it's it holds up really well. It's uh, uh, so people really like it. We started monetizing it uh, a little over two years, oh, about two years ago, and um, and the goal we we held off for a long time because we were trying to figure out what the exact business model should be and the revenue model, and we've kind of settled on an academic medical center sponsorship model, and we also do ads. And, um, and so, so it's been bootstrapped to date. We are revenue positive. We're, we're generating revenue. We have some great customers. Hopkins is a, is a customer and um, uh, Stanford and, um, you know, UC Irvine, UC San Diego. So we've got some and others and we've got some good customers, but we're, we're now scaling up and, um, and developing new products and, and, um, and starting, to, starting to ramp up. And what's the team size? Right now, it's just the two of us. It's just uh, we we outsource a few things here and there. We've got we've also have resources through our partners. We're we're doing some new JVs with a, a French company, but but so far we've been bootstrapped. Just the we do most of the work, the two of us. And when you ramp up, what does that look like? Are you guys thinking about inevitably having? T- teams you know and, and like are you going to need an internal team or are you going to really push yeah, for I think so you- I mean yeah it depends on what how we ultimately spin things up um if we go more of a media content route then we're going to have to staff for writers and um you know and editors and that sort of thing that's one avenue for us the, some of the other things we might do um, around um community and so forth uh, would would require less staffing, perhaps, but yeah, we'll definitely staff up at some level. And then the question just becomes: Is you know, is who does somebody buy us at some point? Talk to me about that media concept. That's interesting. I, you know, I've always I've always been a fan of media initiatives inside of organizations that are doing interesting things. I've always been a fan of and interested in media companies themselves. What do you mean by the, taking a media approach and, and a content approach? I think that's interesting. Yeah, so so what we do on our site is we we rank medical experts by very specific topics. So so not just lung cancer, but certain kinds of lung cancer, not just like at literally every 29,000 different topics. And so, so there are a number of topics that are really important to people 
various cancers and gout and psoriasis and you know, there's literally a couple thousand topics that are just you know a bunch of rare diseases and if we want the media you know media kind of content route we would start to write stories about those topics and probably profile people that are highly ranked in those topics as it is right now, like I interview on a regular basis, you know, top experts in all these different in categories, and I can do uh, interviews. And I think and we're gonna we're gonna continue to do more of that. So that would be a kind of media component, and um, and then and and the uh, you know this probably better than I do, and that is these stories drive people to the site. They visit, they read these stories, they see the ads, they click around. And ultimately what happens is they'll click and they'll schedule an appointment with a physician and then we'll, we'll get you know, some payment for that. Um, um, and there, so that might be, that, that's another extension. And then we'll roll out some other products. We have some search capabilities that are gonna be unique that will be available. And so people can subscribe or we might give that away for free in exchange for, or for, you know, for some other participation. So there are a lot of things we're kind of wrestling with right now. Let, let's rip, are you are you okay with rifting on this for a little bit? I have a couple of thoughts around yeah, this. Sure. Is interesting. Far away. Yeah. And then and then we'll then we'll adjust a little bit. Yeah. Um is it is it possible? Well, let me ask you this. In the 29,000 or 30,000, however many thousand different diseases and different things that are occurring in the body that you have on this site, I'm sure a lot of them are hereditary and a lot of them can be passed through generations, no? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. there a way to I think it'd be interesting. Is there a way to understand or track or put a, or a poll? There probably is using Facebook ad spend or thinking about even different mediums via Instagram, potentially Twitter. Are there ways to poll everyday people like myself to kind of say, hey, out of these 100 or 500 or 5,000 even diseases or any of these kind of an hereditary thing inside of your family today? Because I'm assuming a lot of doctors, right? If that's your mother, if your grandfather, if your parents yeah. dealt with certain things, don't a lot of doctors kind of try to give you some sort of preventative care advice or a heads up that these things could be vital? Yeah, well, yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, what is it? BRCA, the, um, the breast cancer, um, mm -hmm. you know, is a, is a great example of that, where if you have a certain DNA, you know, um, profile you're much more inclined much more uh, susceptible to having uh you know breast cancer and it would be one and you know ashkenazi disease and i mean certain certain conditions are yeah are very prevalent with certain certain uh uh groups of people and yeah you, it would be it would be not difficult at all to to do some sort of survey like that and identify folks and then what and then i guess you'd point them back to expertscape and Hey, here are the top people in, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, Ashkenazi disease or whatever it might happen to be, Kawasaki syndrome or whatever unique rare disease. Yeah, that's yeah. I think you. So I think you would do a couple of different things, right? I think you would point them to the site. Yeah. What I think would be interesting is if you guys were to turn the interviews you're doing now that are what I'm assuming are written format. I yep. think you guys should start a podcast. I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, I think where you're you're bringing on, I think I think you do a dual podcast. 
you bring on the doctors and the experts and the physicians and the, and the folks that are really, really high level experts. Yeah. And you have a thorough conversation. And then for those humans that are, that are, that are willing to be vulnerable enough or open enough, I think you do kind of like a, I don't know if you're familiar with the humans of New York Instagram page. Uh-uh, no, but uh, it's pretty much like, it's like a, it's like an Instagram page where they take really beautiful pictures of everyday folks in New York and oh, yeah. then in the caption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the caption, these folks have gone through all different types of experiences that are just really impactful and really emotional and they're vulnerable and willing and brave enough to come onto this platform and talk about that. And I think it'd be interesting if one part of the podcast you guys were to launch would be the experts and the other part of the podcast would be folks of family members that have dealt with these things, maybe personal people that have dealt with these things. I think it'd be really interesting to capture those stories. And then I think the third thing would be interesting is if you guys were to start a media company, like I think you're thinking you're, you're talking about, which is like a media arm, whether it's like a monthly email newsletter, where there's a variety of different information and content and, if, and, and value, and then you, ret- you, and you and then you target all the all the families and humans that have either directly been affected or have family members that could be affected and, and they're, you know, quote unquote, at risk. Well, no, that's those are that's a lot. <laughs> There's some good ideas in there. And, are, those, are, those, are those good ideas? Yeah, well, no, they are. The, the, well, first of all, the first, a couple of them uh, are pretty scalable. It wouldn't be hard to, to weave those in. Uh, the, the, the newsletter requires, you know, that, again, that goes back to writers and editors, but it's not a lift. But, but yeah, I could see where that, and that's a two-sided sort of thing. You have the physician side, you have the, you have the, the patient uh, uh, healthcare consumer side. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. Take that idea and apply it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. And, uh, and, uh, and then I guess then from there, you could, uh, you could connect them all. You could connect the physicians and, uh, and then, and then the, uh, uh, and patients. The challenge there becomes moderating those communities and, you know, and making sure that there's somebody kind of, that that can own and monitor, you know, moderate that community. And in our case, that could be th- a thousand different communities. They're like we list 400 po- top popular topics on the site, right off just as a convenience page. But there are literally a thousand or a couple thousand topics that are going to drive a lot of attention. Yeah, you definitely have to have a head of community, a full time yeah. role that even has probably two to three other. Um, part-time or even full-time roles as well, doing yeah. community engagement. Yeah. Um, you would definitely need to, and, and just just because humans are odd, and I'm sure with I'm sure with um, HIPAA laws and things of that nature, you would have to have some sort of technology that tracks just any foul language or play or any yeah. HIPAA breaking yeah. HIPAA laws. Um, yeah, this is how my brain kind of works. I'm always thinking about. Um, yeah, always thinking about how how to create either communities or direct consumer moments or media. I've always thought about those things. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we and that's fascinating too because because um, there are certain groups that are really highly activated and engaged and 
we did a, we profile, what we, one of the things we do with the site is we profile the top experts in given conditions on a daily basis and we tweet it out uh, via Twitter. And, um, and then uh, just to recognize people. And when we tweeted about a while ago and did a press release around polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, it just blew up on, on uh, Facebook and elsewhere because it's just a really active uh, group of, of women that, and they love their docs and so forth. It just, it just took off. It was, you know, and so that happens from time to time with us. Exactly. And I think, I think on that note, I think influencer marketing would even be a fourth tool that would, um, that would really, really, really help when it comes to, um, the, the marketing and promotions of the community that you're building again, yeah. whether it's the podcast or an, uh, a monthly email newsletter. And I'll even, I'll even give you another idea for a revenue stream. Yeah. I'm very, very fascinated by the email newsletter business. There are strong seven, eight, nine figure companies that are nothing more than a monthly newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is one that we're doing. Model twofold, right? You can pay, you can look, everyday folks like us can pay a 9.99, 12.99, 14.99 subscription, and then also you can run ads within the content of the newsletter and charge brands five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars for a certain two week or three week stint of of content. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I think it'd be interesting. You could, you guys could definitely again if you target, and and this is not an issue. I think this is like I think humans would be appreciative. You could target those folks through the polling that again, families have been directly affected. Maybe they are directly affected. Um, I believe folks that are significantly at risk or have already been at risk could pay anywhere between six to 12 bucks a month for amazing content around that. Yeah. That's, that's, and we are, we are doing some of that now, Anthony, we've got we, we do some outreach, uh, outbound stuff to uh, mostly to physicians right now. So we reach out to physicians to let them know about, you know, experts in certain fields and we kind of target it by, by specialty. And yeah, that's, that is something that we're going to be doing a lot more of. And I think that there's, you're, you're right. There's a ton of potential there for, especially given the content that we have, because what we do is really quite unique. There isn't, you know, we've got a patent on the pro on the approach, number one, and number two is it's, it's really hard to do what we do because it's incredibly computer intensive. And there are just a lot of quirky things about how the data exists and, and so forth. And so we're, it's, you know, we're like, there's just nothing else quite like this. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Well, it sounds really interesting and I'll throw it out here, man. You know, I'm, you know, my, my day-to-day world looks a lot like employee experience and people operations and all those other things. But um, I'll tell you, you know, between me and you, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to bring value and stay sharp entrepreneurially around kind of other things. So uh, if, if you want to kind of move on those ideas, um, you, you got a free helping hand here. I, I'd be willing to kind of get my hands dirty and and help uh, help think through those think, wow. think through those initiatives. That's a, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great offer. I mean, I mean, I may have to take you up on that. Yeah, let <laughs> let me know here. Um, so I, I guess moving past that, talk to me about uh, talk to me about a couple of things. Sure. Um, how do you think about 
And again, I know you don't talk, you don't focus a lot of that now, but I'm assuming you probably touched on it a bit. Once you work with the the, the founders yeah. in the early stage startups around sales and all the different things that you discuss and you focus on, yeah. how do you, where, where does your engagement end? And what I mean by that is, how do you start to transfer some of your advice to having them think about those first those first iterations of sales teams and sales yeah. partnerships. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And that and that my 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 consulting all over the last decade has always been like I go in knowing that I'm gonna I'm I'm a temporary uh, solution for them. I I go in work for three months. Sometimes I work for a year. You know whatever the time frame is, I know that at some point, you know I I'm gonna extract myself and and they're gonna move on because they've. They've got the right people in place, et cetera, et cetera. So with my, the work that I do with individual founders, it's the same. I, I really just want them to get up to speed on selling and I want them to make fewer mistakes. I want them to execute more quickly. And if I can help in all those sorts of things. And one of the things I really kind of bring to the table is an outside perspective, number one. And number two is a lot of experience. I've been in this space for a long time. So I've seen a lot of scenarios and I'm, and I'm removed enough from the situation that I can oftentimes looking at it from a different perspective. So those are all kind of advantages. But beyond that, I want to I want to get them up to speed, and and then help them understand the sales process and what the right sales process is and what the the components ought to be at the various steps along the way and get their first sales their their first customers implemented and successful. And, and, I want, and then I want to get out of the way. And so I can help with recruiting. I can help with onboarding their first salespeople if they want. But, but I, you know, my, I'm, not, I'm not in this for the long term. I, I want to get them successful and, and functioning and efficient. And then I, I want to get out of the way and move on. So, so it might be a three-month engagement. It might be a six-month engagement. And when I say engagement, it's, you know, it's, it's not a, it's, you know, I'm available, we do a weekly calls, we do, uh, and then we do ad hoc calls when they need. And then, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, a, I'm pretty affordable for them, you know, so I'm basically a hotline, you know, I'm, I'm basically available on call when they need someone to kind of go through the sales process, they want to look at, they want to uh, review a sales deck, they want to talk about strategy, they want to do postmortem, they want to prep for a board call, those sorts of things. I'm around for that. And, and, and you don't have to get too granular, but, but when you say you're pretty affordable, what does that look like? Because everything you just said was amazing, by the way. Thank you for breaking it down. What, is that, uh, what does that look like? I mean, is this a consisting kind of retainer? Yeah. Are these a, yeah. an ad hoc thing? Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, it's a retainer. I'm usually, you know, I'm usually good for, you know, 10 to 12 hours a month if they want or more if they need. But it's, and then it's just, you know, right now it's, you know, it's a couple couple thousand a month. And so that's a whole lot cheaper than having a salesperson on board, number one. And especially because, you know, you've got the loaded cost of the salesperson. You don't even know if you have the right person. And in the first place, I don't think they should have someone. And what, and what I do is I, I basically am available to kind of act as a sales manager and, and kind of walk them through, you know, the, the sales process, keep them on track, you know, uh, ask them important questions and start to, kind of instill a certain amount of rigor and structure so that as they start to get through these first deals, they're starting to establish, hey, here's the right, 
you know, here's the method we go through and here's how you recognize a customer that's in the first stages of the process. They're just doing their homework. They're just, they don't even know that they've got a problem perhaps. And then, you know, versus someone that's in the decision-making mode, they're at the tail end. And, you know, and I, I want to get my founder customers to understand and recognize where they're, where these people are in the sales process. So they know who to invest in and, and, and what resource to invest in. And, and how to prioritize those sorts of things. And that's, that's kind of, that's what I'm, that's part of what I'm training them to do. When, um, so when they do make that transition and they move beyond you, because now they really feel like they need someone internal. Yeah. Uh, what would you say, you know, because one thing that I've actually given a lot of thought on, I used to make a lot of content around this a, a while ago. Maybe I probably should is, uh, what, what advice do you give them around recruiting, finding, or really managing that first person? I know that's probably a little potentially out yeah. of your, maybe not, but I think, um, I think, I think there needs to be more thoughts and perspectives around, okay, you have your first salesperson in house. Yeah. How do we now manage set expectations, unpack and, and really build out frameworks and deliverables that make yeah. sense for both sure. parties. How do you think about all that? Well, for, well, first of all, if the founders, if one or more of the founders is involved in the sales process all along, number one, and number two, if they've been coached, you know, by someone like me, number two, if, if those two things are in place, then when they get that salesperson on board, they already know a fair amount of what needs to happen. And, you know, there's, a, they've, they've got a certain amount of structure already in place. They've got sales materials. They, they know what happens at various steps along the way. And there's a certain amount of system. It's been systematized to some level already. So you've got all that going for you. Plus you've got some customers, plus you've identified who your, your ideal customers are. So you know who to direct that salesperson towards. So it's not nearly as, it's not a custom uh, uh, consultative sale to the same degree that the first 10 or 20 customers might've been. Mm. Uh, so those things all work in your favor. And, and then I can, I can also help with that onboarding process, you know, if they want, um, you know, so those, those, all those sort of things are kind of, those are ingredients to kind of help scale the company. Now, also one of the other things that happens is, if you've got the founders involved with sales in the beginning, they've got it, they're developing a pipeline and that pipeline is gonna make it more attractive to bring somebody on. Cause if you're bringing on a salesperson that's really a professional, they don't wanna come, many of them don't wanna come into an empty you know, territory. They wanna, if you've already got a pipeline that you're gonna hand over to them, it, that's a recruiting advantage. You can pay them less, you know, number one, because they know that you're, they've got sales in the in the pipeline potentially, uh, but also you know if you're if you're a founder and you're working on this stuff from the beginning, you're also invariably on the lookout for the right person to come on board as a salesperson early, and so you can kind of start to talk to people um, while you're still doing the selling and you can look for a certain kind of person and the, the, the more sales experience as a founder you have, the better idea you have of the kind of person you need to have on board. When, you know, if it's, a, if it's the sort of opportunity where 
where there's always a big consultative component to it because it's a lot of custom development or there's a lot of, there are a lot of features or it's a complex enterprise sale, then you need a different kind of salesperson than you do if it's, you know, if it's an application development tool that goes to, uh, you know, for, for Python developers, for example. And so, you go ahead. No, no, no. All of that is amazing. So let's maybe even get a little, let's, let's, let's jump another level down sure. for a little bit more granularity. So, yeah. so they have the need when they're, when they're going out. Well, one thing that I think I really like that you said is the fact that founders have done this work already. There's a base, yeah. you're helping with systems and processes and yeah. things that are all the, the, the house is already half built maybe. Yeah. Yeah, meaning exactly. that Framework, there's 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 a, a trail to follow yep. right yeah because yeah. one thing that i've seen with founders and i think you talked about this early on is a lot of founders that i've seen and maybe maybe these are the recipes of not successful companies actually now yeah. that i think about it yeah. um they are looking to that sales that first sales hire to say get us to the promised land and putting all of their their chips in one basket. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. So in fact, it's kind of funny because I tweeted a little bit about this today. I'm coaching a, a couple founders now and, and they've not been actively selling at all. And, you know, they've been waiting to the point where the product launches and then they're going to start to go out and start to sell. Well, that's, it's too late at that point. And so we've been kind of working on that to kind of get them in place to get that kind of momentum going um, uh, beforehand so that they're, so they're, they're not, they're not, uh, so they've got, they, so they've got momentum, basically sales momentum. They've got a pipeline. Th those, those are sort of the ingredients you, you need to have in place. And you, and you need to be talking about those early and often. And uh, because I think you want to have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people, and then very quickly be able to figure out who, who, who is the right candidate for what you're doing. And if you're doing that, and if you're effective at that, you're going to have um, the sales process is going to be relatively straightforward because you're not you're not convincing them to buy something. You're actually working with them to solve a problem. And if it's not a good fit, you figure that out and you move on. But if it's a good fit, it's sort of the sale should happen relatively, it should happen, I wouldn't say effortlessly, but, but it's certainly not the same amount of effort as if you're trying to sell someone who isn't a good fit. I, I hope that helps. Did that answer the question? No, it did. You just landed another great point that takes you down another path, which is kind of the, the, the foundation of sales is where, you know, a lot of people, when they first come across me, they think of me as a salesperson for some reason. Yeah. I think partnership design and partnerships are probably a little bit more my, my speed. But when I, why I think people think of me as a salesperson, what I always say to them is like, look, I'm, I'm really, and I would love to get your thoughts on this. I'm really more of a guy that, to your last point there, it's really not a sales process or anything that's really a strong uplift because what I'm doing and the way I've vetted how much of a good fit they are it's pretty much we're almost as close as we can to be in a perfect fit like a glove yeah um, 
yeah. versus I'm not a big fan of spending too much time trying to create something from scratch or trying to force someone into a situation that I don't genuinely believe they're a good fit for. Right. What are your thoughts on that when it comes to sales and how founders are trying yeah. maybe spending too much time on clientele or partners that are not a good fit oh, versus no, I think the I think I think that, that just invites all sorts of problems. If you end up selling customers that aren't really a good fit for your product or for your solution, you're just creating a you're just creating a problem for yourself down the road in terms of support, in terms of um, you know, you're not going to have a happy customer. And so now you've got a reference that's not good. You've got, uh, they, they may very well churn. They might very well cancel a contract. There are all sorts of problems that happen. And, and, and I, the, the example that I, this is, this is kind of an overworked example, but it's, but it, but it works so well. The, I'm going to, I'm going to keep using it. And that is, it's a little bit like dating someone and you're in the process of dating and, and the conversation about kids comes up. And the other person says, oh, I want to have six or seven kids and you don't want to have any, that's a, that's a problem. And, and at that point, you have to figure out how serious are you about the number of kids? How big a deal is this? If it's a big deal, that's a deal breaker. And in the, the same is true when you sell. If you sell to someone and it's really not a good fit, you're just wasting time. And, and that's not that's not a loss that's that's a win because if you've been able to identify and and what i try and do with my with my uh, clients is get them to be able to identify these, some of these things as early as possible to save time both their time and their and their prospects and that is if you can identify very quickly that someone is not a good fit um, then you've saved everybody time the other thing about this that's kind of interesting, it's a little almost counterintuitive, is if, if I say to someone, hey, here's one of the things, this is critical for us. We need this in a customer. And, that, and, and the customer says, um, or, or they say, that, here's a, a better way of putting this. Customer says, we really need to have this feature. And, and you say, as the vendor, as the salesperson, listen, we don't have that feature, and here's why we don't have that feature. And if that's really important to you, we don't have, we probably aren't the right people for you. We're not the right company for you. And at that point, the customer has to do one of two things. They have to say, oh, you're right. This is a deal breaker. Or, and this happens more often than you think, wait a minute, they say, let's see how we can work around this. And now you've got someone who's on the same side of the table as you are. And, and a lot of salespeople don't have the, they don't have the experience or the confidence to, to make that kind of confrontational, if you will, statement. But that, that elicits the kind of conversation that you need to have with a customer. And more often than not, it turns into a much better conversation all, all the way around. That's amazing. You just went on a, a really nice rant. And when I say a rant, <laughs> I mean a good way, not a bad way. Uh, I love the rabbit hole you just went down. Um, I guess let me ask you just a really high level question, but I think I think knowing your style, you'll you'll give a really in-depth answer. And I hope you really do. Um, when you think about the fundamentals that that any great uh founder and then inevitably any great head of sales yeah. or VP of sales, whatever role you want to call that person, what do you think some fundamentals are 
um, again, around the, 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 like the pure responsibilities of the role. Yeah. And then um, what do you think of, what do you think of some fundamentals are around how to just do it really well and at a high level? Um, because I think, you know, I, I think, I think there's two real issues of the failure of, of a lot of startups. There's a lot of them, but I think sales is a pretty objective one. <laughs> um, and I think, um, and I think people are, that's another reason why a lot of startups fail. We can talk about that another day. So what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah. So, so I, um, uh, a, a big, I mean, I think where I, there's been some studies out that say 90% of startups fail, uh, fail, and they fail primarily because of sales and inability to deliver on behalf of the customer, which is really another sales problem. So, so I think a lot of those things go back to sales fundamentals. And if you can execute on sales fundamentals, then you're, you're halfway 30, 90, 80% of the way, whatever the right percentage is towards your goal. And this is why I go back to this point about founders need to sell. It's not that, it's not really that hard to sell if you understand the kind of the fundamentals of what a good sales strategy and the sales practices are. And I, I, my, the, I wrote a book about this because I think fundamentals of sales are critically important. And it's just like, I think it's 50 different things that I focus on. And I've got another book coming out that's kind of more focused on how to freelance. But, but in any event, to answer your question is, I think if I were to say, there's some, just some basic blocking and tackling or things like show up on time, do what you say you're gonna do, number one and number two. If you can do those two things, first of all, if you say, listen, if you show up on time, that's half the battle and, per, and not half the battle, but it's a big chunk of the battle because so much of sales is setting the right initial impression. And then doing what you say you're gonna do. If you say you're gonna deliver a proposal on a Monday, then deliver on Monday or deliver it on the Friday before, but don't deliver it late because you're setting expectations. And then the big one, the, the big one for me is, and it's, it's overworked, but it's so true. And that is the ability to listen and not talk and listen, asking important, asking important questions, asking interesting questions in interesting ways and being genuinely curious and then shutting up and letting the customer talk, encouraging the customer to be able to talk and have the freedom to be able to talk is invaluable. And that's where you learn stuff. And that's this, and I have a thing on my website where you can download these, these pages. Uh, that basically are just the discovery process, the sorts of questions you ought to be looking for to get answers to. And, and based on those questions and the answers that you get and the conversation that comes out of those things, that's, that's a big part of what the whole sales process is. Because at that point, now you understand the problem, you know how to articulate your solution to the problem. And, and then you can very quickly figure out between yourself and the customer whether or not there's a fit. I think so listening, you know, showing up on time, doing what you say you're going to do. Those are, those are kind of fundamental components. The other one I would say um, is, uh, and I say this all the time, is convince yourself as a salesperson, you have to understand that you don't need the deal. If you don't need the deal, then you're in a much better position. The customer's in a much better position and you're in a much better position. It's hard to do. You know, people have quotas, there's pressure on them. You've got some sales manager that's looking to, you know, uh, you know, bear down on you, whatever. But if you, if you don't feel like you need the deal, you're in a much better position 
from in terms of selling, in terms of the conversation you have, in terms of negotiating, those things all work to your advantage. How's that? How'd I do? I, no, that was, that's excellent. I knew you would do that. That's why I asked that question. Um, look, this has been a great, great, great conversation. I think um, I think we went down, down a lot of really interesting rabbit holes. And, and, and I think this is going to be a great listen, frankly. Uh, I can't wait to listen to this back. Um, let us, let us, you know, let us do this. Give sure. us some last takeaways when it comes to the work you do, how you think about sales, how you think about sales leaders, founders, any last words, and then we'll get you out of here. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I, I think that, um, I think that sales is, um, is really ultimately just the ability to help someone make a, make a decision. Salespeople really just help you make a decision and good salespeople are really smart. You know, the ones I know that, that, are, that are really good at what they do are smart about it. They understand, they understand their industries. They understand how to solve problems. They're curious. They're constantly looking for new angles of, of like information and, and ways to add value to the conversation. And uh, so those things are all kind of really important. And I guess the other thing I'd say is, is uh, McKinsey came out with a study of, like in the last year or two, the big, the big uh, research uh, kind of consulting shop. And they, one of the things they said was uh, price is not that, and what they discovered is price is not the most important driver in any sale. And customer service and support are twice as important to, to enterprise customers than is price. So if, if you can focus on those sorts of things, the price really becomes, uh, it's a distraction. And I, only, I bring that up because people oftentimes fixate on, I got to lower my price. And most of the time it's because you're, you're kind of back on your heels in the, in the sense that you haven't been able to prove yourself as being good at sales and particularly support. And a lot of front end sales is really sales support. It's, it's, it's being very customer centric and delivering ahead of time. It's showing up on time. It's doing what you say you're going to do. And if you do those things, then I think price becomes much less of a, of a factor in any real sale. And so, you know, I, I, I just figured I'd throw that in there because we hadn't really talked about that much. No, I think that's right. I think that's definitely right. And look, I'll tell you this. Um, there's not too many folks. And if, if you ever, um, if anyone ever wants to kind of go back and, and look over the 300 plus episodes, there's not too many people that come on the podcast for a second time. Uh, I think I definitely need to bring you back on. There's so many, so many rabbit holes that we can climb down. And that was uh, another rabbit hole that is so valuable to unpack as well. Um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I, uh, I think this is a really great conversation. I think at a high level um, and certain rabbit holes that we went down, I think founders and teams will definitely take away something. And I definitely think there needs to be a part two that, uh, that gets granular. So um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how you thought it went and then we'll get you out of here. Oh yeah. Well, this has been fun. And I, I will tell you one thing I haven't really talked about is um, I'm, I've been on Twitter forever. And I'm, but I'm just now in the last four or five months really starting to get serious about it. And I just, that's another topic we ought to talk about because I'm just, I'm, you're, you know, Instagram clearly and Facebook and, and, and I'm, I'm a complete noob on those things. I just, I haven't focused on those at all, but I've been doing a lot more with Twitter. I just think it's a great way to engage your customers, 
and yeah. to have co interesting conversations and to collaborate. And so I'm really, that's kind of an area that's really been fascinating to me. And, and, uh, but this has been fun, Anthony, I really enjoy it. I've, of course, I've been, I've been, you know, rambling on here for, I don't know, like, uh, what, three or four hours now. It sounds, it certainly seems <laughs> like. <laughs> no, no, it was great. And, and last thing I, actually add to that point um i think um you know are you you're obviously familiar with gary vaynerchuk now i don't know your opinion on oh, that yeah. but oh yeah year, yeah years and years ago when he was a little less a lot less actually um a lot less motivational and really 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 tactical yeah. he came out with a book called the thank you economy yeah. and a lot of what he talked about in that book was around customer service um, and the impact it can make on sales and how to actually increase sales through significant, strategic, really impactful customer service executions. Um, so I don't know if that's interesting to you, if you had any thoughts, if you have ever heard of that book, but if you haven't, I would, I would recommend maybe you can find it on Amazon now. Oh, or well, other I, places. Think, I think I have like four Gary V books. In fact, Funny story, I used to live in New Jersey and I know Gary V from, I mean, I don't know, he doesn't know me, but I mean, I know him from the wine library when he, you oh, know, wow. when, from like years ago before he was really, really famous when he was doing his uh, dopey wine, I shouldn't say dopey, but his, his YouTube video reviews and, and so forth. The guy's, a, I think he's a, a genius and, and I, and I, and I think he's, and so, yeah, but I've known him forever. I've been watching him and, uh, and he has just blown up. And uh, I'm still hoping he gets to buy the Jets. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Actually, as you were talking, a really big trade. The Jets just traded Sam Darnold. I don't know how close you are to following that. but I am not. Is that a big deal? I, I, I only know that Gary wants to buy the Jets from, uh, was it the Maris? Is it the Maris that own the Jets? Yeah, it's a huge it's like a deal. Yeah, it's the, uh, he, he is the starting quarterback of the Jets, so that's probably not a good thing. Oh, yeah, they, they can't, they can't get out of their own way, can they? No, they cannot, <laughs> but um, I'm, a, I'm a Ravens fan, so I'm not too worried about them. <laughs> it's in here. It's uh, <laughs> but thank you so much, man. Again, I really, really, really appreciate it, um, and uh, I'll let you get out of here. This is fun. Great. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Really appreciate it. It's great. 100%.